Hi, this is Michael Narducci, and you are watching the TV Writers Podcast. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 95 for April 20th, 2020. This episode is sponsored by Pilar Alessandra of OnThePage.tv. Be sure to check out all the resources and classes on her site, and she also offers one-on-one -on -one coaching via Zoom. TV Writer Podcast viewers can get 10% off on any of her services. Just reach out to Pilar directly and tell her I sent you. Speaking about sponsoring, there's a new way that you can support the podcast. There are a lot of operational costs like hosting, web server. You can visit tvwriterpodcast.com slash support to find out how you can become a patron of the podcast for as little as 25 cents per episode. But check it out, tvwriterpodcast.com slash support. Well, today I am so excited to bring you an interview with Michael Narducci. Michael Narducci is a writer and producer currently working on an as yet unannounced Netflix series. He recently developed Warriors through ABC Studios. He had an overall deal there. Prior to that, he was the showrunner on the originals for Warner Brothers TV and also served as a writer on The Vampire Diaries, Medium, The 4400, and The Crossing. Michael was born and raised in Youngstown, Ohio. He attended Harvard University where he lettered in football and graduated magna cum laude with a degree in psychology. Then he went on to receive his MFA in creative writing from the University of Virginia. His short stories have appeared in a number of publications. He taught creative writing for seven years and also taught in Boston, Charlottesville, South Central LA, and South Korea. Um, and he brings a lot of his experience as, as a teacher and also as a sports player into his show running, into a really collaborative approach to making television. I think you're going to love the interview. Let's roll. Well, I am so pleased to be able to interview Michael Narducci. Um, we've, we've met at a bunch of conventions before, but it's so great to have you on the podcast. Showrunner and EP for The Originals, which was a fantastic series. Also co-EP for The Crossing, writer and producer for The Vampire Diaries. Um, great to have you with me. I'm very glad to be here. Thanks uh, for inviting me on. Very, very cool. And uh, I'm especially um, really excited to, to talk about your your current stuff that you've been doing since then, and we will definitely get to that. Um, but first, I, I really want to just um, sort of deal with the the thing that's current, currently happening right now, which is the virus. Um, how How is that affecting you professionally? How is that affecting your family um, and just, just personally? Well, uh, you know, obviously, like everybody else, uh, we're very scared. Uh, we have been, um, you know, uh, quarantined uh, for the past uh, three weeks. Um, we're anxious about this. We're concerned about how it's going to affect uh, the world, our country, our community. Um, we know some people who are sick, and they describe it as uh, an awful, uh, very bad version of the flu, uh, like much greater in terms of symptoms, longevity, and um, just the the you know way they're coping with it. It's it's bad. Um, so we have uh, little kids in our household, and my wife and I are trying to keep them comfortable and entertained and homeschooled and safe, and trying to keep ourselves safe so that we can continue to take care of them. And, um, you know, it's a, 
a time when we're seeing people try to uh, come together as a community by staying apart, which is ironic and strange. And we're trying to find ways to uh, help the community, number one, by not getting sick ourselves, number two, by trying to support local businesses and um, make donations to people who are in trouble or who need help. Um, and, you know, for right now, I'm just trying to research as much as I can on, you know, what's going on, what should we do and, and how can we help? Um, and then meanwhile, uh, I am coming to the end of a 20 week uh, stint on a show and I'm able to finish up my writing work from home. Uh, I'm beginning to see what the future may look like in terms of uh, writer's room meetings online uh, on various apps, um, Zoom, Skype, etc., and it's a very different uh, dynamic, but you know, people are finding their comfort levels, they're figuring out what they need to do, and uh, they're trying to find a new balance and a new way of being you know, normal in this new time. Mm. Yeah, and, I, and I've heard actually, um, there's, there's a lot of people who have been seeing the positives in this, in that you can do a lot, um, you can do a lot more remote kind of work um, I mean, typically, if somebody wasn't able to come to the writer's room, they were just gone. But now people are, are thinking more about, well, hey, FaceTime in or, you know, it, it, there's a lot of different ways that we can, you know, if you if you were on set in Toronto or in Vancouver, there's no reason you can't FaceTime in. Any, but we just didn't think of it before. Right. Right. And, I, you know, certainly I think the wireless technology, the speed of the Internet, things are different even than they were just a few years ago. I remember calling into the writer's room uh, on the originals when I was on set and, you know, having a phone to my ear as I'm listening to people pitch and trying to have a response and be smart and say things that are helpful and, you know, react to uh, great ideas. This is uh, my little one. Uh, and it's... Um, you know, it, it's it's great that we are able to have technology to help support uh, these jobs that can function at a remote level. A lot of people don't have uh, that opportunity. A lot of jobs require you to be there physically and to be hands on. And so it, it's a very difficult time. And it, it's important to think about that. And, you know, I hope that we are able to. Um, you know, isolate and beat this thing so that people can, you know, get their careers back and continue to support their families and themselves. Very, very cool. Well, let's uh, let's rewind way, way, way back. And um, I I was reading in your bio, and I just find it very interesting that you lettered in football, mm -hmm. and yeah. ended up as as a as a writer. Tell me about how that sort of happened. Um, it's interesting how the two uh, seemingly disparate, you know. Uh, ideas really line up in a lot of ways. Um, you know, the writer Erwin Shaw described writing as an intellectual contact sport, you know, and um, I think the camaraderie and the teamwork that you employ on a sports team is very much applicable to uh, what happens in the collaborative process of a television show. But, um, you know, my dad was a football player, baseball player, basketball player. And when I was a very young kid, he got my brothers and I into sports and we loved it. And, um, you know, he really believed that sports was a great way of teaching camaraderie and sportsmanship and, and just functioning in a group and the common cause of everybody together working towards a goal. Uh, and that was a big part of our DNA. 
And as I got older, I, you know, realized that the creative component that was just a part of who I was, you know, demanded uh, to be uh, to find some release. And I, you know, started to explore writing, which is a very solitary thing to do. You spend hours and hours and hours alone. And for a long time, I thought I'd be a short story writer or perhaps a novelist or perhaps a feature writer. And I tried my hand at those types of writing. Um, and then uh, some friends uh, talked to me about being TV writers or trying to be TV writers and describe that um, profession. And it seemed like such a great amalgamation of everything I loved. And I do believe that, um, you know, the athletic uh, demeanor lends itself to that uh, experience of being in a group writing sec segment and, and trying to kind of come up with ideas as a group and mm -hmm. seeing your show as a common goal that everybody is trying to you know, contribute to and bend their intellect to and, and, you know, fight for, uh, together in a good way. And, um, so the, the kind of sports persona has, I think been a great benefit to my experience as being a TV writer. Very, very cool. And, and you actually did publish quite a bit, uh, lots of articles in uh, short stories rather, um, in a lot of publications and you taught for a while too. Um, and so tell, tell me about how that, how you ended up in Hollywood, um, and how you broke in at that point. So coming out of uh, college, I had some great teachers who uh, advised me to look into graduate school for creative writing. And it was something that had never occurred to me before. It was not something my parents thought would be the right uh, path uh, coming out of, um, you know, undergraduate. It was always the focus of, you know, finding a career and getting a job after college. But I really wanted to take a stab um, at graduate school and writing. And while I was at uh, the University of Virginia getting a master's in fine arts and creative writing, I had a chance to teach. Um, I published uh, some of the writing that I did at that time um, in magazines like the Virginia Quarterly Review and um, Meridian and uh, interviews and other places uh, that I did with authors and, and some nonfiction work that I did. And um, it was a really exciting time. And I was also falling in love with being a teacher and I wound up moving to California to be a high school teacher for four years mm -hmm. full time. And I was teaching American literature and creative writing and then specialty senior electives like novel into film and, you know, poetry and nonfiction writing. And I did a class on uh, The Sopranos where I really studied that show and fell in love, um, you know, with dramatic serialized television. And I did another kind of sequel class based on Six Feet Under. And it was at that time that I really fell in love with uh, serialized television. And so I had these um, short stories that I'd written. I had a couple features that I had written. And then I began to write spec scripts. I wrote um, an episode of Sopranos, which was just my own concept of what a Sopranos episode written by me might look like. And then I wrote an episode of Law and Order. And the reason I chose Law and Order is because I wanted to do something completely different from mm. serialized, character-heavy gangster show. I wanted to do a self-contained uh, kind of a short story all contained in one episode where we got to see, uh, you know, a crime committed, the crime discovered, someone is arrested, the police are trying to figure things out, they realize they have the wrong person, they get the right person, and then the lawyers have to build a case. All of that happens over the course of one, you know, 45, 50 page script. So it was very different um, from the Sopranos episode that I wrote. So I, with those two pieces of writing, I really felt 
um, like I was now understanding how the TV script writing world worked and, mm-hmm. and then I kind of moved to LA. I did another three years of part-time high school teaching while I was trying to find an agent. And that was kind of the, the bridge that led me from being a, a teacher and an aspiring writer to moving to LA and still being an aspiring writer and trying to find my way uh, into the, uh, the Hollywood industry. Very cool. So, so did you get representation just based on those, those spec scripts that you had? You know, interestingly, I did not. Um, I, I talked to a lot of agents. Um, the, the thing that I found, and I think to an extent this is still true, agents will say that they uh, will hire you uh, once, you know, or they will, they will represent you once you have a job, you know, right. but they don't want to represent you until you have a job. So it's a strange catch-22. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, you know, telling agents, I don't understand, how am I supposed to get a job without an agent? Um, and they say, well, figure it out and get back to us. Um, so what I did was I just kind of continued writing. I wrote, you know, a pilot, um, I wrote another feature and then I was using all of this, um, all of these writing samples to try and, um, you know, show my work to anybody that would look at it in an effort to get the representation that I needed in order to get a job. And by that point I had friends who were successful TV writers and, you know, some of them said, Hey, pass your script to me. I will give it to my boss. Maybe you could do a freelance episode. Maybe there's another way, you know, to, to kind of break in. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, what I was doing was applying to several of the, um, you know, studio and network, um, workshops and programs for aspiring writers. And, you know, I applied and got rejected, applied and got rejected. And I finally did get into the Warner Brothers Writers Workshop. And I think your viewers should definitely Mm -hmm. be aware of that because Mm -hmm. it's uh, offered every year. Uh, Hundreds of people apply. They interview uh, several dozen and then they take maybe 10 or 12 and uh, anybody who gets into that program is going to receive some great mentorship. Uh, they're going to receive, um, you know, some notes and feedback on their work. Uh, they're going to receive some guidance as they're writing yet another spec. And then um, uh, showrunners are incentivized to hire these young writers because Warner Brothers pays half the fee of their salary. So it's basically mm. like paying a young writer at half off. And that was the case for me. So when I was in the Warner Brothers program, I was kind of plucked out of uh, you know obscurity. I had a chance to get some notes and some mentorship and this financial assistance to make me half off as a writer. And then I, I landed my first gig. Um, I was hired by Jack Orman to work on uh, the show that he had created, uh, Waterfront. And I worked with some great writers on that show. Unfortunately, that show was canceled. But at that point, you know, I had done the job. I understood what it was. I had made some friends. And it, it really proved to me that this is something I really love doing and want to do. And I'm going to continue to pursue this. Very, very cool. Uh, uh, I hear nothing but good things about those fellowships, particularly the Warner one. Um, but uh, you actually have, from doing dozens of these interviews, a, a fairly rare <laughs> a path in. And the, it, most most people will go in through the production assistant Right. Um, the script supervisor, but to be able to sort of headbutt your way <laughs> in, so to speak, um, without going that route. Is, very uh, fortunate. Yeah. And 
And strangely, I, I applied to be a writer's assistant. I applied mm-hmm. to be a PA um, and I was passed over uh, a few different times. Um, I was rejected uh, from the TV show house a few weeks before I got staffed through wow. the Warner program. So, you know, it, it, it just goes to show, you know, I was passed over for a freelance job um, on a show I really liked and I, it was brutal and heartbreaking and I was, you know, I thought I was a failure, et cetera, et cetera. And then a few weeks later I got accepted into the Warner brothers program. So if there's a message here, I think it's, you know, it's an uncertain field. It's very mm-hmm. difficult to know when your opportunity is going to come and you just can't give up. If it's something you're passionate about and you really love, you, you know, find a way to keep going. And, you know, if you persevere, you increase the odds that you're going to find your way. Right. Right. I hear I hear so often that luck is always going to play in, but you have to give opportunities for that luck to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. Yeah. And so so uh, you you did get on staff and did you get representation at that point? That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Brant Rose of the Brant Rose Agency. Um, uh, I, I met him through the Warner Brothers program. Um, we had a meeting. Uh, Brant, uh, his wife, Tuchis. Um, they sat down with me and we had a really great conversation about what storytelling is and what movies we love and what TV shows we love and what's the point of being here and committing your life to a vocation as a writer. Mm-hmm. And I loved that conversation because he didn't talk to me about how much money I could make. He didn't talk to me about how much money I could make him. Um, we talked about the aesthetics and the philosophy of creative endeavor and um, I had a few other meetings with agents, um, but he was the one who impressed me the most. And I uh, stayed um, in contact with him. We decided to work together and he has been the only agent I've ever had. And I, you know, have, other agents have tried uh, to talk to me and I, I just really feel pretty secure and a, a great affection and respect for him and the way he does business, um, both him and his wife. So I, I love Brent and it's been a really good uh, collaboration. He was one of the first agencies to sign um, uh, the WGA code this past year. Mm. So uh, what's been very frustrating for a lot of my writer friends to have to let go of their agents, I haven't had to do that. Wow. Uh, and it's it's been a, a blessing. And, and I, I can't really be very vocal about the difficulties people have faced with having to fire their agents because I have not had to you know, the burden of carrying that cross. And, um, I'm just very grateful for, for Brant being a a good person who focuses on, um, finding the people that he represents the best work and, you know, really thinking about what's, what's going to be best, not just for his pocketbook, but especially for that writer's career. Um, so he's very good, very good rep. The the way you speak about him is almost like I, when I hear people talking about their managers, um, yeah, he, it sounds like you might have a slightly more of that relationship with him, but you also have management as well. I do. Yeah. Um, uh, since even before the Warner brothers program, I was, um, in contact with a guy named David Baird at kinetic management. Um, you know, David is, um, the same kind of guy. I actually met him while I was a high school teacher because he came to talk to the high school oh, wow. where I was teaching, um, to, you know, explain what uh, he does uh, as a manager for young writers. And it was an outreach program and he was really trying to educate the kids I was teaching. And I was so impressed with him and what a stand-up person he was and giving back to a community and and the same kind of thing. His 
conversation about the importance of story and what he sees as his role in a writer's life uh, really appealed to me. And we built a friendship. Um, I shared some writing samples with him. He gave me some thoughts that I thought were very strong. And um, we built a relationship. And over time, uh, he asked if um, I wanted him to rep me as a manager. And, uh, you know, I, I would say kind of the difference is in some ways, this is an oversimplification, but, um, you know, my manager is almost like my trainer if I were a boxer, you know. Um, uh, he's he's taking a look at some of my work, giving me thoughts and examples and notes and, you know, a little bit of guidance to prepare me for the big boxing match. And my agents help me find the next boxing match. You know, they're helping me get situated so I'm prepared for the best shot that I have um, you know, uh, almost like a promoter, you know, mm. and, um, between, uh, both of those agent and manager, I really feel like I have a team of people that are helping me, uh, do the best I can as I, you know, navigate the craziness of Hollywood. Well, walk me through a little bit about how that worked as you, as you sort of finished the one show and you were, as you were moving towards trying to get another one, what did that look like when, when the one was ending, um, did you already have samples ready? Um, did your agent set you up on a bunch of meetings and you just went or or was there a little bit in between? Tell me a little bit about how how that worked, especially in the beginning when it, when it's a little harder to get your next series. So there's a few different times in my career where a job has ended and I've been uh, in that position of trying to find the next thing. So uh, when the first job I had, Waterfront, ended, I was just unemployed. There was no path forward. I had no job opportunities. I had been a staff writer for about two months and then that show was canceled. And uh, I was on, uh, you know, indefinite hiatus. I had lost my high school teaching part-time position. And it just so happened that at about the same time, um, a job came up for a show called The 4400. Oh, I love and, that show. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah. I loved it too. My agent asked me if I was interested and uh, in a kind of set of unusual circumstances, asked me if I would be willing to meet with the showrunners and pitch ideas for oh, wow. that show going into its fourth season. So not only did you have to know th what the show had been, but to go in for an interview and have an idea of what kinds of ideas you would pitch for the new season of that show. Wow. And, you know, I, I sat down and kind of thought about the show and what it meant to me. And if I had the opportunity, what I would like to bring to that show. And I walked in and I pitched a few ideas. And one of them actually became, um, you know, the kernel of an episode uh, in that fourth season. Um, really loved that show, working with Ira Bear, Craig Sweeney, really awesome uh, people. And um, then that show ended and I kind of hoped that it would come back and that I would get the chance to come back with it. But then the writer strike happened. Mm. And during the writer strike, uh, USA announced that they were going to cancel the 4400. So now I'm on strike, walking a picket line, unemployed, no hope that when the strike is over, the, you know, the plant or the hospital or the school is going to open back up. You're just kind of going to ride this out. Um, strike ended. I was lucky enough to get some interviews for various shows. I interviewed on shows ranging from The Mentalist to Eureka to Sons of Anarchy and Fringe and a few others, and I did not get the job. Um, uh -huh. It was really frustrating, uh, kind of disheartening. Um, but because of my time on the 4400 and the contacts I made, I befriended a gentleman by the name of Craig Sweeney, 
Uh, Craig was a co-EP, I believe, on the 4400. He was a co-EP, uh, if not an EP, on Medium. And he called me up and said, would you like to interview on Medium? So I went in for the interview. And again, these interviews are very important because these you know, showrunners or co-executive producers, the people that are running the writer's room, they're going to ask you, what do you love most about our show? And what do you think you could bring to our show that nobody else can? Mm. And preparing for that question, I managed to answer it in a way um, that got them interested in me as a candidate. So that interview combined with my writing sample, combined with having worked with Craig on the 4400, I got my foot in the door on, on that show. Uh, I was also brought back as a staff writer for now my second show, third show, uh, staff writer on Waterfront, staff writer on the 4400, staff writer on Medium. And, you know, it was my job to come up with ideas that are befitting the fifth season of a show. It's been on, you know, NBC for a lot of episodes mm. and they've done a lot of stuff and it's a very complicated, nuanced, interesting show. Medium was great because it's both the nuance of uh, incredible characters, but also it's got to have that, uh, you know, beginning, middle and end of a case, you know, a murder is committed. Alison Dubois, portrayed by Oscar winner Patricia Arquette, is dreaming of these fragmented puzzle pieces. And she's got to come up with a solution over the course, you know, your 44 minute episode of what's really going on with, you know, all the kinds of dips and valleys of your dramatic cycle uh, over the course of that time. So really complicated show, but I enjoyed it. I worked on it for three seasons and then oh, that wow. show was canceled. Now, when that show was canceled again, I did not have any idea of what was next. And, you know, unlike in the past, um, I hadn't been writing my own stuff. I had been really focused on writing medium episodes. And so I didn't have a ton of samples. Um, what I had was, you know, three years of working on medium, a season working on 4,400 and, uh, a couple pilots that I'd written. And, um, I also had been brought in by my agent, Brant Rose to talk to and meet with, uh, Kevin Williamson and Julie Pleck oh, wow. just, just because they wanted me my agents wanted me to meet with them. And I was a huge fan of Kevin because, uh, you know, like most people my age, I fell in love with Scream. I thought it was an amazing mm. movie. It blew my mind. Um, got me excited to be a storyteller. And, you know, I remember watching it in a giant theater with people reacting the way they would to a sports event, you know. Yeah. And so I really wanted to meet him. And uh, for my meeting on The Vampire Diaries, I still had a job on Medium. I ran and watched all the episodes of Vampire Diaries season one. And then I took my meeting uh, with Kevin and Julie and I just really liked them. Very cool people, smart, um, uh, incredible personalities, great passion for the show. And they described a show that was unlike any other show I'd ever worked on for two reasons. One, it was a serialized drama. It wasn't um, you know, a case of the week. It was very much like each episode was a chapter in a, in a beautiful novel, this larger tapestry. And two, you know, the paradigm that they mentioned many times was the idea of making the show kind of like 24 in that it would be jam packed with, um, incident. It, it's nonstop. Mm -hmm. Things are going to happen in act two that other shows would save until the end of an episode. And I love that they were able to jam pack their episodes with so much great stuff 
while still pausing and having beautiful character moments and beautiful um, emotional moments. And, and that was a hallmark uh, of what they did on that show. And I think it's why it was so successful. And I wanted to learn from them. I wanted to be a part of that. And I said, guys, I'm on medium right now, but if that should end and I'm free, I really would love to work with you. And so cut to about six, seven months later, medium did get canceled. And my agents called up Kevin and Julie and they didn't have a need for a writer, but they decided to bring me on and I was able to join the staff midway through their second season. And it was incredibly complicated because there were all these characters, all this plot, all this stuff that I did not have access to. And all of a sudden I'm in a room with all these brainiacs, Caroline Grease, Mike Daniels, Andrew Chambliss, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to write this show. And it was a steep learning curve, but I, I loved it. Hmm. And um, from there, um, Julie wanted to do a spinoff. And I think she tossed around a bunch of different ideas outside of my knowledge. But then uh, one day she invited me to talk to her about making a spinoff about the originals. And her pitch was, we're going to go to New Orleans. We're going to steep ourselves in that culture. Um, we went and traveled there with a friend uh, named Marguerite McIntyre, who's an actress, and she played the sheriff on Vampire Diaries. And three of us did all these vampire tours and ghost tours and, um, you know, ate great food and went to bars and just really tried to absorb as much of the history as we could and um, started to brainstorm ideas. And what we came up with was you know, one of my favorite stories uh, in my professional career. And so I worked with her on that show um, for, you know, one season as a co-EP and then as an EP in season two, three, and four. And then, you know, we just hit a point where Warner Brothers wasn't sure if the show was going to come back. And I needed to know that I had some kind of um, uh, job security, vocational security. I, uh, my family was growing. Um, uh, my wife was pregnant with our, uh, one of our children. And I, I wanted to see what else was out there and then make sure that um, I had an opportunity to create my own stuff as well. And at that point, um, because of some meetings that my agent was able to get for me, I sat down with a bunch of different folks and the folks at ABC were phenomenal and uh, very kind, and they made me a great offer that uh, necessitated that I kind of make a change. Mm -hmm. And so I wound up uh, going to ABC Studios, um, and with an overall deal, they gave me an office, um, they allowed me to hire an assistant, and they asked me to develop and also be available to uh, consult with and give thoughts on other projects and maybe even join a writing staff. And so what I ended up doing was joining the writing staff of The Crossing in my first year. Mm -hmm. And that was a pilot written by um, Dan Dworkin and Jay Beatty that uh, blew me away. It's still one of the best pilots I've ever read. I loved it. I thought it had a certain um, excitement and it had adventure and had an ensemble uh, group of characters, all of whom were interesting. And it was science fiction rooted in a dilemma that we face in our real world. You know, mm -hmm. it really was about um, asylum seeking refugees, time traveling from the future to our present. And it was a way of thinking about an issue that is on a lot of people's minds, but thinking about it in a new way from the lens of science fiction. And that's yeah. exactly what I want to do. So I got the chance to work with them on that show. I have to admit, I was uh, really sad that that show did not 
um, catch on with the viewers uh, as much as I thought it should. Um, but then after that, I was able to develop. And that's a whole other story, which I, I'm glad to talk about. But I think that takes you through the answer to your question. What do you do hmm. when you uh, not sure what's next. You go on interviews, you have your writing samples, you present yourself as best you can. You show that you are a fan of the uh, series that you're interviewing for and you suggest what you might be able to contribute um, and and hope for the best and, you, you know, maintain, uh, you know, an ability to not give up even when you're passed over on a few other shows. Mm. Well, and, and I, I'm hearing from a lot of different people that, that enthusiasm for the project is so huge in those meetings. I think so. Um, and having done for those you know interviews from the other end, um, I've talked to writers who come in and, and talk about you know staffing on the originals. Um, enthusiasm is important. Knowledge of the show is even more important. Mm. Then you know passion for the show which is backed up by specifically what you are passionate about, hmm. suggesting a knowledge of the show, and then really saying, you know, what I would love to see you do is focus in on this, or what you could do with this character, or explore this. And not, I'm not talking about specifically about plot pitches, hmm. but just, you know, thematic concerns, or, you know, questions that a passionate viewer may have had, which lend themselves to, you know, more story ideas. And I can see that this person is a story engine. You know, they're, mm. they're a machine that's going to add to the discussion that really results in story in a, in a free-flowing writer's room. Very, very cool. Well, and so as you're describing going from show to show, I mean, you, you definitely describe people that you learned from. Would you say that there were any particular mentors along the way, like people who really sort of showed you the ropes and maybe even took you under their wing? You know, I have to say the mentors, it would be wrong to mention mentors um, without going back uh, a long way. You know, um, my parents were always really big into me reading and, and absorbing story. And my third grade teacher introduced me to uh, Madeline Langle and C.S. Lewis, uh, Regina Hudak, I'll never forget her. You know, my um, college professor, Dr. Rondo Rockwell, was the first person who looked at my writing and said, you have talent, you should explore this. You know, if you have a passion for it, um, let me introduce you to other writers who can help bring that out of you. And she introduced me to Tom Parada, the novelist who wrote The Leftovers and Election and Little Children. And, you know, Tom's one of my heroes. And to have that guy who I adore read some of my fiction and tell me that I have talent, it was one of the biggest moments in my life. Um, the great writer uh, Deborah Eisenberg was a huge influence on me. Uh, my, my friend Maxine Rodberg, um, you know, was the person who encouraged me to apply to graduate school. Um, the late George Garrett was just an incredible writer who meant a lot to me. Um, you know, there's been a lot of people along the way. And then I would say every writer I've ever worked with to an extent has had a major impact on me and, and influenced me in really good ways. Um, you know, Jack Gorman is an incredible writer and a great showrunner. Uh, Ira Bear, I think maybe the champ, you know, he's just a guy who knows how to break story and always he's playing 3D chess 
um, looking at character and plot and theme and making shows excited and functioning on all the emotional, you know, spectrum. Um, Julie, of course, uh, was a great, uh, uh, boss, a great partner. Um, I got to learn a lot from her and watch her. Um, and I can say, you know, without any doubt, she's probably the most passionate showrunner I've ever worked with. You know, the mythology, the characters, she truly adores, um, that writing and, the, and those stories in a way that I think is uh, incredibly appealing and inspirational. Um, I worked with a guy named uh, Matt Olmsted um, on The Crossing, who's just um, you know a savant when it comes to story. And you know, recently uh, I had a chance to return to work with an old friend of mine, Rebecca Sonnenschein, on a show that she created. Um, we're buddies. We work together on Vampire Diaries. We work together on The Crossing. And now I had a chance to be on her show, and just spectacular to see what a great showrunner she is, and mm. not only an incredible writer uh, who can just bring it on the page, but someone who's exceptional exceptional at uh, letting people know what her vision is, inspiring people, getting them passionate about what she sees as the vision of her show and, and you know, letting them loose to find new and interesting things and then guiding them back to what's the best version. So it's been an incredible opportunity to work with all those showrunners. Very, very cool. I, I, you know, I, I, you come across like a, a learner to me. Um, mm. And also what I'm, what I'm hearing a lot is is probably um, your sport experience. Like you, you right. come across like a team player, if that, yeah. if that makes sense. I think that's true. I mean, there's a great book um, called Difficult Men. Uh, I'm, the writer of the book is escaping me, but it's a series of case studies about various showrunners from, you know, Sean Ryan and um, David Chase uh, and, um, you know, um, just everybody. And um, one of the showrunners says that there's uh, different styles of showrunning. And he describes the masculine style as the authorial vision where this is my show and all of you guys need to get on board with what my show is. And um, the, the other kind of showrunner he describes as the feminine version, which is this is our show. This is mm. a communal vision. You're all a part of this. We are greater than the sum of our parts. And, and that's how I want to run a show. I want to run a show where we are all in it together. Uh, I want to, you know, as the leader, I want to present an idea and, and kind of aim for the moon and try and capture a vision that we can all chase and give guidance and support. But I want people to bring things that I couldn't come up with on my own. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I just think I, I believe it was Alan Ball who said that, by the way. And I think, you know, the fruit of that philosophy, Six Feet Under, uh, is, is you know, one of the best shows there is. So obviously he knows what he's talking about and it, and it works out. But I, I highly recommend that book, Difficult Men. And um, it's, a, it's a really great philosophy that I hope to stand by. Very cool. As I, as I talk to a lot of people, it's funny. Um, pretty much. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of people mention the what you call the masculine example as right. the sort of negative version. Yeah, <laughs> like, like they, it, it's and it's always with I have so much respect for that guy, right. um, and he produces such amazing stuff. But you can always feel that there's this disconnect, and and I I feel like so many people want the other style. They want the sort of um, team effort. I mean, I know 
from my own experience, I've had coaches who, uh, you know, force you to think of them as the king. And uh, I've had bosses who force you to think of them as the king. Uh, I've been in a classroom with teachers who are authoritarian, and I've seen the product of those experiences. I've also been a coach, and I've been a teacher, and I've been um, a, a group leader where I've focused on trying to inspire people. And my students are better when I try to inspire them and I say, mm -hmm. this is, we're all in this together. My, my teammates are better with the coaches who are trying to inspire everybody. We're all in this together. You know, if you look at the, one of the best fictional examples of a football coach, Coach Taylor from Friday Night Lights, he balances that I'm the boss authoritarian vision with, you know, I'm here for you. And all I demand is that you give me your best. And uh, when I was on the originals, I, I remember taking great pride in trying to be a mentor myself. I didn't always succeed. In fact, you know, the, the failures stand out in my memory a lot more than the successes. But there were a lot of writers on the originals uh, who came on to our show as their first time working professionally in Hollywood. Oh, wow. mm -hmm. The originals was their first credit. And um, I was very proud of that, to work with these writers, uh, some of whom were very young, some of whom had struggled for a long time in the business trying to find their way, and they had just been passed over because of, you know, it's not a perfect system, it's a deeply flawed system. And I, I recognize some of these writers as incredible opportunities to take a, a very talented, high value person and, and bring them on board and share my style and my philosophy and my vision and my hope uh, with them and then let them produce, you know, mm. let them do amazing work, which then makes me look like more of a person who's, you know, smart, a genius, then certainly I am, I'm not that person. But I think by working very hard with these other writers um, and giving them some freedom and some opportunity, I think we made something again that was better than the sum of our respective parts. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because the originals was a very nuanced, very complex, um, very rich uh, story. And I would never know that, that there were green writers in there. That's really kind of you to say. And then I'm sure uh, those writers would probably object to the notion that they were green. You know, <laughs> at the time I met them, they were they were writers. Don't get me wrong, but they it was kind of the first kind of time they were breaking into this industry. And I think I learned a lot from every one of those writers. Mm. Um, but but what was cool about it was, um, you know, a lot of them approached the job with such energy and passion, um, and you can't duplicate that. And uh, I think every season. I'll kind of map it out for you. Um, and this was at Julie's behest. We kind of had an overriding principal idea that we tried to kind of set up in our minds. So in season one of the originals, we were thinking of it in terms of imagine uh, the Sopranos meets interview with a vampire, you know, and that was what we were trying to execute for that season. And then we tried to do that as much as we could. And then we kind of told a completed story over the course of that first season. And then the second season, Julie, very early on in the process, said, I want to make a fairy tale, a dark, you know, adult fairy tale with all those tropes of fairy tales. You know, the wicked stepmother, the girl who's been sleeping for centuries, you know, all those different things. And we embraced that idea. And we told that story for the second season. And then in the third season, 
we wanted to do something different. And what we landed on was to really borrow heavily from Shakespeare. So the witches with a prophecy in Macbeth and, you know, uh, the warring uh, Capulets and Montagues and all these different components, the tropes that are common among some of Shakespeare's great works. We brought those in, we talked about them and we kind of mixed it into a stew and we let that idea be the moon that we were aiming for. Now, we don't always hit the moon. Of course, I'm not saying that we ever approached Shakespeare. Absolutely not. But when you're aiming high, you you go higher than you might otherwise. And I think it was a guiding principle that was serving as rocket fuel and inspiration for us. And then in the final season, um, I remember coming in and I, I showed the writers two things. You know, I showed them um, the novel uh, by Stephen King uh, called It. Mm-hmm. Um, and I showed them um, a short story by H.P. Lovecraft called The Call of Cthulhu. And I said, I want to tell for the first time in this series a proper horror story. You know, and I want to borrow from all these tropes of, you know, wicked New Orleans supernatural ghosts and and crazy phenomenon and, and all that stuff. And let's really reach in and present something that is truly scary. And even if you don't like that, I think what's cool is that each of those seasons are very different. And so that allows mm. the audience to experience a variety of stories. So we're not just doing the same thing over and over and over again. And that was the goal. I'm sure there are people who say that we failed at that goal. I feel like that's the commanding principle that helped guide us uh, during my time on that show. And I, I'm proud of it. And I, I like those stories. And I think mm. at the end of the day, that matters. Yeah. Very, very cool. Yeah. I Big fan of the originals. Loved, loved, loved that series. I uh, actually I only met Julie Plank once, but uh, we had a little moment talking about the the very end. Mm-hmm. Um, just love it, just love it. Yep. Yeah. Um, in in uh, what I love especially about the originals is you is New Orleans is is really like a character almost in the story. Yeah. Like it, you you really feel the culture of it pervading through the story. Right. Um, uh, I've been yeah. to New Orleans several times. My brother lived in New Orleans for many years. Um, I I think it's one of the great cities in our country. I mean, it's completely unique, um, you know, beautifully diverse, uh, amazing cuisine, amazing music. Um, It's a magical place. And I I was very excited that that was where Julie wanted to set the show. Very, very cool. So um, segueing into you, you mentioned you do a lot of uh, teaching and, and that kind of thing. I know that you're on a lot of panels I've seen you at, at a number of them uh, in the conventions and and uh, conferences and things. Like, do you what part of what you do is mentoring and giving back? Um, and why is it even that question? A lot of showrunners wouldn't do that. Why? Why do you feel this is important? I think it's. Uh, I mean, when you asked me who my mentors were, I immediately started to think of my teachers. Um, and when I was trying to break into Hollywood, I didn't have access to a lot of Hollywood writers to tell me how it works and what does it look like and, and you know, how does one get a job or how does one break a story? Um, where do your ideas come from? How do spec scripts work? Any of that stuff. And so it was always very important to me going back to my time, you know, as an undergraduate, which was my first experience teaching. And then obviously in grad school, I got to teach um, a couple semesters at the University of Virginia. I became a high school teacher. I ultimately taught four years full time, three years part time. 
Um, I moved out uh, to L.A., uh, became a writer, and now I, I teach at UCLA a few semesters. Um, the idea that I could potentially help someone find their path and take an instinctive love of story and help them turn that into a career, you know, is important to me. I'm a mentor for the Writers Guild. Um, I have a few people that I talk to regularly. There have been a few people who've reached out to me and I kind of email them regularly. We exchange correspondence. I try and give them the advice that I think will help them. Um, I introduce them to other writers. Um, it's, it's important to me that you take this lucky good fortune that you have, that you've kind of broken into this Hollywood world and you try and give back a little bit. Uh, it's important because it feels good. It's important because probably somebody helped you at some point in your career. It's also important because anything that you can do to nurture stories is going to make the world a better place because mm. I fundamentally believe that one of the antidotes to the problems of the world is story. You know, mm. one of the things that will cure despair, one of the things that will cure apathy, one of the things that will cure hatred is coming into uh, contact with a story that blows your mind, that excites you, but also forces you to look at the world in a different way. You know, mm. F. Scott Fitzgerald talked about this in the opening pages of The Great Gatsby. You know, you have to look at the world from, you know, somebody else's point of view and imagine that they didn't necessarily have all of the things that you had. Well, what's it like for them? Every time I read a story or watch a movie or, you know, get absorbed in a TV show, I am stepping outside of my own perspective. And if we could learn to do that as a species, we're going to have more empathy and have more concern for others. And I think that that the, the emotions that are conjured up when you are loving a story are cathartic. They are healthy. They help you view the world in a good way. So if I can help inspire some other young storyteller to create a story that makes the world a better place, then I've contributed one small little iota towards helping the world. You know, mm. Henry had this line where he said, some writers exist only to help another writer write. And, um, you know, I hope that that's not all that I am, but I hope that I am that. Mm. And I take that very seriously. And so that's why a few years ago, um, I was asked to speak at a class at UCLA. And after uh, that lecture, I talked to, um, uh, you know, one of the professors and I said, how do I do this more regularly? And, and that's when I was able to, you know, start teaching at UCLA. And it was an, an incredible experience. And, you know, when I speak at a panel at WonderCon or Comic-Con, I, I try to impart genuine thoughts that will be helpful to aspiring writers. That's who I'm speaking to on those panels, aspiring mm -hmm. writers. And, you know, I'll hang out afterwards for as long as I can. And if someone has a question or somebody wants to talk, I'll, I'll try and answer it because I, I think at the end of the day, I'm, I'm just helping impart my tiny little bit of experience that might help someone in some way. Well, and it's a very rare industry where the person you help may one day create the show that you're a consulting producer on. Yeah, I, I often think of it more like I may one day be lying in a bed in a retirement home if I'm so lucky and watching a show that is created by one of those. <laughs> but that's, yeah, that's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, well, so uh, that's actually a good segue to talk about development. Um, you've, you've been doing quite a bit of a development over the last two, three years. Tell, tell me about that. Um, and also, even just landing a, a, an overall deal, we often hear people saying, oh, 
they that person got an overall deal that person over got an overall deal what does that look like when you when you get one like how, do you do you walk in pitching one or do they just offer it to you or um tell me about that process too Usually um, your representation will say that that is what you're looking for. And mm. the reason I looked for an overall deal was because I wanted um, uh, a guarantee of financial security um, and an opportunity to focus on uh, my ideas and, and my development. In some places, they really want you to be a workhorse that is contributing to someone else's creation or somebody else's vision. And that's great. You know, you're lucky to get those jobs. But there also comes a time when, as a writer, you say, I want to create something. And I want to at least try to create something. And I uh, thought a few years ago when I went from uh, the job I had to the ABC overall deal, I hoped and thought that that would be the best platform um, to achieve that dream. And while I was um, developing, really my second year at uh, ABC, um, I met with a lot of producers and we talked about a lot of ideas. Uh, over the course of probably um, you know, 18 months, I, I came up with probably about eight pitches, uh, mm. really complete 10-page pitches that involved you know, characters and a world and imagined a, a teaser that we would see in a pilot and then what the rest of the pilot might look like and who these characters were in very detailed descriptions and then what the first season would look like and then you know, what second season, third season might look like and what is this world and why should you want uh, to invest in this idea? Why would an audience really want to watch this show? Um, and you know, what I found was, um, it was a very rewarding time because I was kind of like a novelist, you know, I was dreaming up, I was world building, I was character creating, and, uh, it was extremely satisfying. Uh, I created a show that I pitched first to Regina King, um, who loved it and signed on to be a, a producer and to be our director. And we wrote a script that is the thing that I've written uh, in my time at Hollywood that's, that I'm the most proud of. It was a show called Warriors. It was about a retired NFL player uh, who returns to his Ohio town and uh, after a knee injury and starts to be a teacher at the school where he went. And not only do you see the struggles of being a teacher in the modern era, but you also flash back to his own experience um, being a high school student and what that was like. And it was very much based on the life of a man named Wade Davis, who was an incredible NFL player and a friend of mine who I met uh, through a producer at ABC named Michael McDonald. And I just took elements of Wade's life, and Wade was also a producer on the show, and I took elements of my life and my experience as a teacher, and I kind of jammed them together. And I made this story about these two best friends who were trying to save uh, the high school where they went to. And I thought we were going to be able to tell stories about the importance of educating our youth and what it means to be a man in 2018 at a time when we're talking a lot about toxic masculinity and, and uh, misogyny. And, you know, there's this Time's Up and Me Too movement, which is a reckoning that is long and coming. And what is the appropriate and proper role for men to play in their communities? And I mm. thought going to talk about that. And, you know, for whatever reason, uh, ABC passed um, and I was heartbroken. And then you pick yourself up from the ashes of that experience and you pitch more things. And uh, like I said, I, I did, did this many times. Um, I, I pitched um, most recently, I pitched a, um, 
modern day retelling of The Great Gatsby, which mm. was one of my favorite novels. And yeah, me too. I wanted to tell it from the point of view of a hotshot um, uh, female financial analyst in New York City. And, you know, her name is Daisy. And you understand that she is the object of obsession of this man who disappeared and who has now reemerged as a secretive billionaire. And I want her to investigate this guy and figure out where he's from and how he built and amassed this grand fortune and was there malfeasance involved and all at the same time it's an investigation it's also a beautiful romance and it you know explores um, a lot of the same thematic concerns that Fitzgerald was putting forth and the parallels between the 1920s and the 2020s uh, there's a lot in there that I thought was ripe for um, analysis and interpretation so you know I pitched that to ABC ABC decided to pass but I know it was a great project and I, I would like to resurrect it and try it again. Um, I pitched some stuff to Marvel TV that I was really excited about. Um, I had the chance to pitch to uh, the guitarist Tom Morello, who's one of my heroes, one of the great musicians of our time. Um, you know, I made a lot of cool friends and we talked a lot about great story. And, um, you know, as is the case with development, you put your heart and soul into something, it's no guarantee that it's gonna go forward. So when some of these projects started to run out of steam or just run into a brick wall, um, I made myself available for staffing opportunities and that's how I came to work with my good friend, uh, Rebecca Sonnenschein, who had created a show for Netflix. Um, and that show is unannounced as of yet, so I, I won't say too much more about it except to say, I think it's incredible and I'm very honored to be a part of it. And I think Rebecca Sonnenschein is a genius. So uh, that I think that brings you up to speed. Very, very cool. And so so what um, what would you say that you're most passionate about? Like when, as you're, de you're developing a whole bunch of projects, what you probably got connected a little bit with um, with sort of what was inspiring you the most. Right, right. Um, I think that, you know, going back to a few of the themes I've touched on over the course of this interview, the, the concept of um, common cause. You know, I love shows that have an ensemble of characters. So you get to enjoy character A, but also be a little bit interested in what's going on with character B. And as you fall in love with character B, lo and behold, character C is also becoming one of your favorites. I think that supplies an audience with a lot of different hooks to get uh, deep into them and, and kind of bring them along for the ride. Um, so the idea that it's not every man for themselves, it's, it's a world where people need to recognize that we're all in this together. And what are, mm. what are the, you know, the, the honor and the duty that comes with being a part of a community? Um, and, and usually that really does land on fictionalizing a small group of people with some kind of goal that they have in mind. And they could begin as adversaries. You know, one of my mm -hmm. favorite movies of the past 10 years, and I think about it a lot, is Mad Max Fury Road. At the beginning of that movie, Mad Max and Furiosa are on complete opposite set, uh, opposite ends of the kind of uh, drive spectrum. They, their, their goals are not aligned. Mm. Um, over the course of that movie, a bond is formed. And, you know, it's incredibly well-wrought story that takes place with minimal dialogue, but you believe it in such a strong way that it's impossible to leave that movie and, and not feel an incredible sense of the bond that those two characters form. And I love that. I want mm. to do that. Um, I also think just writing stories that uh, are kind of little micro 
empathy exercise machines. You know, that you experience these movies, these stories, these television episodes, and it awakens something in you that you care about these fictional people and your emotions are turned on. Your joy is turned on. Your sadness is turned on. Your humor and your laughter and happiness is turned on. The excitability of standing up and saying, yes, that was amazing. You know, moments of awestruck wonder, moments of existential despair. And then you turn it off, you turn the show off and either you interact with your family or your your partner or your friends and you share conversations about the importance of that fiction. And I think that that is one of the great um, byproducts of experiencing art is that it brings us closer together with the actual people in our lives, mm-hmm. um, whether it's online or over the phone or at the family dinner table or at school or at work, whatever. Um, I think that that's essential. And it's, it's one of the ways that I interact with my friends and family is by talking about these stories that we love. Um, so it's a, it's a great litmus test for understanding your fellow, you know, friends and people. Hmm. You know, it's, you know, it's interesting, 10, 15 years ago, we talked in television a lot about the water cooler conversations. Um, when everybody was watching the same shows, it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting. Now that we're in peak TV with over 500 shows on the air, I think there's fewer opportunities. I mean, you can go into work and you might be passionate about a show and there's fewer people who have seen that show. But I'm, I'm, I'm wondering all these conventions if that's meeting that kind of need. Now we see pe- people joining online with communities to discuss shows and, and connecting in, in those ways. Um, but that, let's, let's turn the topic more towards the, just your experience as a writer. Um, what is sort of the, the hardest thing you feel about being a TV writer? Um, you know, there's, I think a lot of answers to that question in terms of, um, like any group endeavor, there can sometimes be a a political component where there's a temptation to service, um, the hierarchy, the structure, uh, there's a person in charge and sometimes writers, myself included, fall into the trap of trying to endear yourself to that person in charge rather than focus on what is the best story. Hmm. So one of the mantras I try and keep in mind is best idea wins, best idea wins, support for the best idea. And I think you can do that if you really value the importance of story in our culture. It's not about the paycheck. It's about, you know, who will be influenced by and affected by this story. I think at the same time, being a writer necessitates that you have an individualistic perspective. You know, you have your own voice, you have your own vision. When you join somebody else's show, you are helping them achieve their vision. And you have to be aware of that. And you have to sometimes say, I know that the showrunner of this show, the person whose vision I'm trying to emulate, does not like X, Y, and Z. So I'm not going to put X, Y, and Z into this idea, into this script, into this, you know, uh, outline, whatever, even if that is my area of of interest. Um, When I uh, left one show uh, and moved on to another show, I realized that there was a, a kind of like a Venn diagram. And that Venn diagram of what I could do versus what the showrunner wanted was occupying this little space. And I realized there's all this stuff on the outside of that space 
that was not an overlap with my, you know, uh, person I was working with that I, I wasn't able to explore. Mm. And, you know, it could be as simple as this for seven years, I wrote about vampires. I never had a particular affinity for vampire mythology. And in fact, the first pilot that I sold after having worked on a vampire show for seven years was about real people living in a modern day, um, small Ohio town. Mm. And I, that was a conscious choice. I wanted to step away from genre. Now I'm not saying I don't love genre, but I wanted to exercise some different muscles. I wanted to challenge myself. And, um, I think there's a whole world of story out there. And as a writer, you are often hungry to write the things that are different from what you're writing every day. And I think mm -hmm. that's probably the biggest challenge. Um, you know, the challenge of working with people who are perhaps not living up to um, what you may want the exceptional ideal version of a colleague or a collaborator to be, that is a challenge for a lot of people. It's not a challenge I have uh, been unfortunate enough to have to deal with uh, very often. Uh, most of the people that I have worked with in Hollywood are phenomenal people. And a lot of them I'm still friends with and communicate with, uh, often. Um, but for other people, I know getting saddled, uh, with uh, a boss who's cruel or mean or worse, uh, can be devastating. And to those people, I would say it's a bad experience. I don't know how I, I can't advise you how to endure it but I know that there's a better opportunity out there. So please don't give up, you know, find that other opportunity and you will, it will allow you to spread your wings and do something amazing. There's still great work and great opportunities out there. So don't give up. Mm. What, what would you say is the best part about being a TV writer? I, you know, I really think it's the best job I've ever had. And I love all aspects of it from blue sky brainstorming sessions where you're just saying what if and and having an, a dialogue with people and you'll pitch a personal story and listen to someone else pitch a personal story talk about for example a fear talk about for example some time you fell in love or talk about something that really made you laugh and over the course of a discussion you slowly start to sculpt um, an area code or an idea or just a, a starting point, you know, and I, I love the process of breaking story and finding the essential scenes that really help tell the tale and with a beginning and a middle and an end and a twist and a twist on top of the twist. Um, that collaborative aspect, writing on the board, you know, getting beats down, refining those beats, making them better. I love that. I love taking those ideas on the board, translating them to a page and filling them up with more drama and idea until you have an outline. And once you get that outline improved and you explain to your showrunner, you explain to the studio and network executives what your vision for this is and you get their feedback, that then the fun really begins because you get to go off and write and make discoveries along the way. And you know, I, I love being obviously on set. I, I love uh, watching uh, incredibly talented actors and I have been blessed to work with incredibly talented actors uh, in my career, uh, particularly on, on the originals. Um, really proud of, of those 
actors and the work, the incredible work that they did, um, seeing those words come to life, it's, it's an amazing process. Mm-hmm. And even being in post, working with editors and sitting with them and, and talking about a moment and how to sculpt that moment with the footage that you have and with all the magic of cinema from sound to, you know, the magic of editing. It's, it's an incredible, incredible process. It's labor intensive. It takes you away from your loved ones. It, uh, you know, forces you at times to give up on other opportunities because you're spending so many hours doing this job, but, uh, it's, it's the best job I've ever had. And I love it. Very, very cool. Um, what, what do you think the industry is at right now? Obviously aside from the virus, but, um, I mean, people talk about peak TV with over 500 shows, meaning there's a lot more shows, but people are talking about smaller staffs. Um, uh, what, what do you feel is good and what needs to change? You know, it's tricky to sit here and try and prognosticate what's happening next. I mean, you've said it, right? We're moving from 22 episode shows with a staff of 10 or 11 people to uh, my last show was an eight episode show, not my show, Rebecca Sonnenschein's show, an eight episode show with a staff of, I think, five. Um, It's a very big difference. And, you know, it's changing the way writers are able to make um, careers for themselves, the way they're able to make a living. Um, I think we're seeing um, uh, fewer and fewer writers and showrunners making giant paydays and uh, the kind of middle to low level writers really being forced into a box where it's getting a little bit difficult, Uh, Mm. you know, financially. I think they're still making uh, you know, enough money to have a career, but it's changing, you know? Mm. Um, and I don't know that that's a good thing. Um, I, I would say the good thing is that we're seeing a diversity of, um, the talent pool. So it's not just as it may have been in the sixties and seventies and eighties, white male writers that Mm -hmm. are creating and staffing these shows. Um, the world seems to have, um, realized that there's so many, people out there that are craving story and story that represents their experience of the world and speaks to the themes that matter most to them. Um, it, it makes sense that you have to have a diversity of people who are making these stories at every level, at Mm. every level. Um, and I think that's a great thing. And it makes me excited to imagine a world where my daughter's um, are going to have an opportunity if they should choose to be to, you know, to be writers and be respected and to get out there and do some cool stuff. So, um, yeah. Very, very cool. I, I have a 17 year old daughter. You've, you've met her. Um, yeah. she, uh, she actually wants to be a TV writer. So that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. She should pursue it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great time for her to, to do it. Yeah. Very I, cool. I absolutely believe that that's true. And, and I would say, you know, to anybody, you know, it's a great time to be a writer, whoever you are. You know, uh, I, I certainly don't mean to suggest that because there was a time when white males were the predominant voices heard, that if you're a white male now, you should not be trying to be a TV writer. I think that we are building to a world where there's so much story being made and there's such a demand for story. And there's so many different shows, more shows now than there have ever been. Anybody who feels a calling to this vocation should you know, put pencil to page and write and put their heart out there and learn as much as they can about the craft and write incredible story. And I hope, my hope is that that story will find a way. Very cool. Well, that's a, that's a great segue to our sort of final section here. And that's advice to greener writers. Um, and so what do you look for? 
like you've been in the position now a few times where you you have to read scripts and interview people being hired for um, coming onto your show. What are you looking for in those in those scripts and in those interviews? I think it's a combination of passion, um, knowledge, um, desire to work within the realm of what the show is. Um, uh, certainly empathy, ability to connect with other people and listen to notes and respond to those notes intelligently, um, courage, uh, people don't really talk about courage that much necessarily with creative endeavor, but I think you need a certain courage to be able to exist in the space where you don't have the next answer. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you don't know what the next episode is and you start to panic, you're not going to come up with a good idea for what the next episode is. You have to have the courage to sit in the darkness and dream and wonder what's the best version to the point where you might find a good idea, a B plus idea, but then you land on that B plus idea and you spend months and months trying to make that B plus idea work and it's never going to rise above a B plus. What you want is the capacity to have the courage to sit in the darkness and come up with the A plus idea. And that I think is, is it, it comes down to your passion for the characters and your love of the show and a desire to sit in that darkness and collaborate with your peers and try to find your way. And, um, you know, I think when someone comes in to an interview and they start to talk about the show and they can't remember a character's name or they mispronounce another character's name or they're pitching ideas that we've already done, that just speaks to me of the fact that this person doesn't know the show, doesn't really care about the show the way I would want a strong candidate to care about the show. So I would say as you're preparing to go in for these interviews, know backwards and forwards the show that you're going to be interviewing on. Um, if it's just a pilot, read that pilot. Think about that pilot. Imagine that you're already staffed and come up with ideas for what those next episodes might be. You might not pitch those ideas. Your person who's interviewing you might not want you to pitch them. But having that knowledge and that passion will inform your demeanor over the course of that conversation. And I think it will speak well of you um, over the course of that interview. Very cool. Um, are there any particular mistakes you see people making um, that they could easily fix? You know, one thing I don't think we talk enough about is the idea that if you interview for my show um, and you've worked on other shows, I'm going to call up people who know you, who've worked with you, and I'm going to ask them about you um, because I want to know how you carry yourself. What happens when you receive notes? Do you respond in a way that is collegial and, and that you are trying to get the best version of a story or are you going to take things personally and, and be difficult to work with? Are, are you someone who panics? Are you someone who gets flustered and, and kind of throws up a bunch of nonsense rather than stays the course and passionately focuses on achieving the best story possible? Um, your reputation is important. Um, if you're a writer who's never had a job in this industry before and there's nobody that I can call, then I'm going to put a lot of weight on that interview. And I might keep you a little bit longer to talk to you and get to know you more and, and ask you questions and, and look at, you know, a bunch of different, you know, angles of, of your response to different things. Um, social media is a new aspect of this. You know, if you come in and sit with me on an interview and you're a very nice person, um, but your Twitter feed is just rife with all this mean, uh, hate filled nonsense, uh, at anybody, 
uh, it's going to make me wonder if you're the kind of person who's willing to engage in the prospect of writing from someone's point of view who's not you. Hmm. You know, I want to see shows where people can come together and overcome their differences. Um, I want to see, you know, characters who might have different ideological perspectives come together and find overlap. That's the storytelling that I think has a chance at healing this fractured, divided nation. Um, if you cannot look at someone's perspective with any empathy or warmth or human um, forgiveness, uh, I, I might have a hard time believing that you're necessarily going to be the person who's going to contribute to a room where that's a big part of our vision. Now, this does not mean that I'm not going to hire somebody just because I don't like their Twitter feed. Uh -huh. But I do think, you know, your social media presence is one more foot that you put forward in a world where as a as a boss, I may be potentially trying to hire you. So yeah, I'm going to look at you in your writing. I'm going to look at your samples. Mostly I'm going to look at more than one sample, you know, for Every writer that has more than one sample, I'm going to read at least two, sometimes more samples. And I, if it's a pilot, great. If it's a spec of an existing show, that's fine. Um, but I want to know you as well as I can because what I'm doing is I'm hiring someone to be part of my team mm. and to work with everybody else on my team. And if we do this correctly, you know, 10 years from now, we'll look back on this show that we loved and we'll all still be friends and we will all have learned from one another. And it's, it's going to be a great artistic collaborative process. So it, it's a lot of pressure in those interview moments, but you know, you're trying to do your best. Yeah. And you've, you've shared, you've gone through five or six of these interviews, not gotten the job. Um, yeah. what's your advice to somebody who, who has been to a few and, and just isn't, isn't landing on a, on a job? I think it's a lot like actors going on auditions and giving their all and doing a great performance, but not getting the part. You know, you have to say that's the way it works. I was not the person they were looking for for this role in this moment. Don't give up. Keep at it. Because if you didn't get that fifth job, it might be the sixth job that's waiting for you and it's the ideal situation. So you, you got to get to that sixth job in order to make that discovery. So, you know, if you love this and are passionate about it, you won't give up. And that's going to maximize the probability that you, as you said earlier, have the luck that you need to break in. Very cool. Well, that is a great place to end up. I know we've gone a little long here. Uh, I appreciate so, you taking all this time, being so gener generous with your time. Um, on Twitter, your Twitter handle is? Just Michael Narducci. Michael Narducci. So everybody, please follow Michael. Um, and I know we haven't many conventions this year, probably because of the virus, but um, Michael's a regular attender at a lot of the WonderCon and Comic-Cons. So make sure you go to those and check out the panels that he's in there as well. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. I really appreciate the opportunity. I wish you the best with this. It's really great that you're doing this. Thank you. All right. Drivingfootage.com provides 4K nine-angle driving plates for film and television. Over 14,000 clips are available for locations all around Southern California, with more areas coming soon. A fully equipped camera car with height-adjustable rig is available for custom shoots and second-unit photography. Get more realistic driving shots so your viewer will pay attention to the story. Visit drivingfootage.com for details. avgearguy.com provides computer and gear rentals serving the LA area, including laptops with final draft, as low as $9 a day with long booking rates available. They also scan photos, documents, video and audio tapes, and film reels to digital so you can easily share with your friends and family. 
Mention the name of the TV Writer Podcast and you will get 10% off your order. Visit avgearguide.com for details. Full disclosure, I do own both of these companies. By supporting them, you help me bring new in-person video interviews to you. You can find dedicated audio-only feeds of this podcast at iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and Pandora. You can access the video versions via YouTube, iTunes, Podbean, and on the web at tvwriterpodcast.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Gray Jones is my handle, and be sure to like us and post reviews on all of these aggregators. During the Shelter at Home order in April and May 2000, we'll be posting weekly episodes on Mondays. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.